Hey team, welcome to episode 83 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. It's been a busy few months for the NDP team with several speaking engagements and events, one of the most important being the Hinman Dental Meeting in Atlanta. At Hinman, we hosted the first ever practice ownership program along with some of our favorite people and filled the room with dental students, residents, associates, and current practice owners for a full day educational and networking session. We had a great time and it was amazing to see this vision by our fear leader Charles Loretto come to life. Our attendees ask a ton of great questions during the session, but we didn't have a chance to address all of them. So today we want to take the time to do a rapid fire of sorts and go through the top questions and answer those questions of all the things that are on the minds of dental students and non-owners and even a few seller questions thrown in there as well. We have a lot to catch up on, but before we do so, Mr. Loretto, hello. Hey, Miss Ratcliffe. We Good. are uh, recording live from uh, the new office. Yes. In the green room. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, it's exciting new venue for this us. This is like legit. You know, when you <laughs> when you have an office and it's got a podcast room, I mean, you step in your game. We up. are stepping it up. You know, it, it's like uh, growing up in the Oak Cliff when, you know, you had the first house and the second house had two bathrooms. Oh. You're stepping it up. Yeah. I mean, you know what all I mean? the options. <laughs> <laughs> Color TV and all. I mean, we are moving it up here in the uh, Kane Waters NDP house. Speaking of stepping your game up, this ownership program was a passion project of yours. Yes. And even though maybe Joellen and I maybe had our doubts in the beginning, you told us where to go and pulled it off. Tell the listeners before we get into these questions, just let's give a little bit overview of of what you accomplished. Well, first of all, I know you were scary as hell because this might have been the first vision that I've had that I didn't actually have you implement uh-huh. everything. Uh-huh. I was a little and nervous. So you had a lot on your plate this past year. So I just came up with this idea and kind of ran with it and got you involved later. So I appreciate you allowing me to do this. <laughs> but no, it was incredible. In the previous years, just going to lectures at the Hemin and, and, and literally just having, you know, this little 30, 40 person turnout. It just is disappointing. And so I just had this vision of filling a room up a couple hundred people and students, by students, the way. Yep. students, mm-hmm. and getting over the major hurdle for a student, which which is what they want is they want something that is on their mind, which is business. There's a financial barrier to come to meetings and they want to have fun. So basically we got some sponsor money together, including our own money, and then came up with a few thousand dollars to cover 80 room nights. And so we attracted 160 students to this meeting and next year it will be a number much greater than that. But we basically paid for the room and paid for them to party, some a little too much. And then we put an all day transition course on. And of course uh, you were a great moderator. I spoke, uh, Mark Hyman spoke, we did a transition panel and really did a lot of interacting. And, And I think probably the most rewarding part of this was the ability to really put uh, sellers and buyers together for private practice ownership and to connect them. It absolutely just warmed my heart. So it was amazing. And then from that, like you said, we had so many people with just positive feedback and lots of questions. And so when Joellen was kind of to put all this together and put all these questions together, I was like reading just last night, I was like, pretty dang excited. Yeah. You know, I was like seeing these questions, like Mm -hmm. I actually can't wait to address these. So this is going to be fun today. It's going to be super fun. Yeah, Yeah, no. This will go into a couple of episodes because we got a lot of good content that we want to make sure we cover. Lots of good content. And I I mean, if if it's okay, I think it's nice to also thank our sponsors again for helping us put that on because it was such a success and these people care so much about ownership and students in this education. And so, you know, NDP, 
Kane Waters, Provide, Benko, and David Cohen all um, helped contribute to the success of that event. So well, um, you actually get one more shout out. Provide gets two shout outs only oh, because yes. we were a little short on funds uh, as far as what we did because we oversold anyway, the event. Uh, oversold the yeah. event, and Johnette with Provide was amazing. So and just helping cover some of those costs. So yeah, we could not have done this. You got to have a vision, but also you have to have funding. Yeah. yeah. Lesson, business lesson number one. Yeah. You know? And, and I certainly believe in this and I certainly will write the check, which I do, but there's a certain amount of checks that my partners, including you, are like, Charles, we can't just give everything away. <laughs> All right. Let's get going. Okay. So we're just going to go in order that um, Joellen, our wonderful producer, put these together. And so some of these are going to be easy and some of them are going to be a little bit longer. But the first question, what key factors should you look for when choosing a practice location. Okay, the person who wrote that obviously does not listen to this podcast. <laughs> Episode okay. two. Episode two are our most famous. So come on. Uh, uh, like yeah. it and love it, right? You yeah. got to like it. You got to love it. You got to be able to see yourself there. It doesn't really matter what the practice ends up producing or collecting or cash flow. If it's in the snow and you hate the snow and you want to live near a beach, you're not going to be happy there for long term. And that's what our goal is. Yep. So I had a, a call today where the girl was from the towns. They, you know, they've been out of practice five years. And it was literally six years since they've been out of practice and they're moving back. And I saw one of the things is she was from there. I was like, yep, this is going to work. This is going to work. Yep, this is going to work. So that's that's that question. Go back and listen to other episodes if you want more information there. But this one made us both laugh. It was clearly a student writing this question about practice ownership. But the question is, can you speak on additional stress that comes along with owning? Is it worth it? And we laughed because this is like universal to owning anything. No doubt. <laughs> I mean, it's owning a home. Mm-hmm. It's having children. Mm-hmm. It's owning any business. It's owning your personal relationships. I mean, it just, it's going to come with, it's going to become responsibility. But I think I put the question back to you, and I know we've maybe discussed this, but, you know, as an owner and as a mom, uh, just yourself, how do you address the additional stresses that come with ownership? Okay, one thing. So I'm cleaning out a closet this weekend, and there's a list from high school that I've saved because I'm a pack rat, and it's a most likely to list. And in high school, my senior year, I was voted most likely to own her own business. And I thought that was laughable because I was like a very risk averse. I was like, that's stupid. I just got that because I couldn't get anything else. You know what I mean? And I laugh now in hindsight because I realize that everything in life that you do that is like truly worth its salt is super scary. And it feels as though you can't do it when you do it, right? Like if you have children, I'm certain I could not keep a child alive or do it correctly. And now I've been doing it for 12 years and I have a second one. And so I've clearly, you know, done that right. Home ownership, right? Like how am I going to know how to turn the water off? How am I going to keep the yard alive? Like you just do the thing, right? And business ownership has really been no different. It's a different level of caring about something. I don't think you can own something if you don't care about it. I mean, I'm sure you can, but I don't think you can do it well because the stresses of the ownership and the stress of the financial impact and the people, keeping people happy is a huge part of ownership and making sure that you have the people, at least in our world and in a dental world too, right? Your people are how you keep your patients happy. And if your people aren't happy, your patients aren't happy and your business doesn't thrive. All of those things are things that if you're not passionate about what you do, you don't care about what you do, you don't have a vision about what you want to do. It's really hard to keep those things moving along. So for me, it's just kind of 
balancing the stresses of it are worth it because I really enjoy what I do. I really like who I do and I really am fulfilled by the work that we do. One thing I want also just to, to remind us our associates and even students that maybe have not have gone to work in an environment yet is when you do work as an associate, you're still responsible for, mm-hmm. you're the doctor, you're the senior most mm-hmm. person in the room. So you're still responsible for the people. You're still yep. responsible for how things run, still responsible for making sure that the clinical is set up correctly and the procedures are done correctly and making sure that the day goes smooth and you're still managing people. So I always say that, you know, regardless, you might as well get paid to own the business because you're doing the vast majority of the exact same work. Well, and having the ability to control what the solution is, right? If there's a problem and you're responsible for hearing the problem, but you have no control over what the solution would be or how to fix it, that's also very frustrating. Yeah. But I do want to just address, I think if you do talk to owners, the overarching, just like common theme that you're going to hear is that People are hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is hard. And I, and I don't want to discount the fact it is hard managing people. It's hard finding good people. It's hard motivating people, leading people. I mean, it's a people problem. It's a people business that we are in, Christy, as well as, you know, in the dental business you're in. And then the other thing I address, too, as an owner, you're always on. The patient's always right. You're always right. And you're dealing with customers. And so, sure, these are the things that drive me as a business owner. I love to be on when I'm off, there's times I just, I can't wait to come back to work because I want to get back on. And sometimes if the people frustrate me or the clients frustrate it's also the same thing that gives me push and, and gives me this thrive, this this excitement just to be able to either A, help people, or in this case, it could be an employee or, or it could be you know a client. So it's funny that you see these, these same stresses or it's also some of the same things that, that can impact you the most as an owner. And that's another thing that you're not thinking about too as a non-owner is just the success and happiness that, that comes with it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a balance of both things for sure. So this kind of rolls into what we just said about people. This question is, how do you handle challenging staff as a new graduate slash female? And then in parentheses, imagine it's a practice owned by an older male that has owned the practice for 20 years. Yeah. Parenthesis. And <laughs> when I first read this, I started thinking like, what was it like for Christy being the young person <laughs> to come work with old man Charles? Okay, that's that's what I thought, you know. So, I mean, I, I'm sure it's stressful. I don't know. Just sometimes it's going to remove this whole male-female thing. Look, it's a people person. If you're a male buying from a female or a female buying from a male, I don't know. I guess if, if, if anything, I just see these practices thrive from whoever you're buying it from, and I just don't see there being this issue between this female buying from a male and then all of a sudden they're not going to get the same case acceptance or do the same work or all the patients are now going to leave. I, I, I guess I'm just clueless about this. What, what are you? You're smiling. I have to interrupt because (laughs) I think that there can be. I think that what you're saying. I know where you're going. I already see it. I think what you're saying is true. I think this question will depend on how you buy. It will depend on your personality and it will depend on the male, you know, the old male that she's referencing here, their personality, right? If you are going to buy 100% of a practice, it's going to be your practice and you're working short term with a male who's kind of been the leader and been in charge and everyone's been taking orders from him. That short work back is probably going to be probably one a really tough period for you. And you know why? Because change is hard for everyone and change is hard for people. Control is hard to let go of. And so I do think that there's a piece of this that is... I agree with you that doesn't have to be male, female, but I do think that generationally an older male has a harder time letting go to a younger person in general and a younger female might be hard. 
What I would say to a female who's taking over a business is you are the leader. You have been chosen by this older male seller to buy their business. And I think that speaks volumes. So I think you you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself. You also have to look at the people who you're going to manage, which in most dental practices is primarily female, right? I think if you can connect you're going to come in and you're going to be seen whether you're male or female or younger or older, you're the new person and you're, that's going to present challenges. So you have to come into that business with confidence in what your vision is, but with openness to listen and learn the people who are under you before you start telling them what your vision is and how you're going to change it and what it's going to be. Earn their trust. People are people and they're going to be maybe resistant to change. And your job as an owner and leader now is to figure out each puzzle of each person that is on your team, figure out what makes them tick, figure out what they like, what they don't like, what do they love about that, you know, senior male that's leaving the practice now. And my gut is that for most women, we lack a little confidence in ourselves in that leadership position when we're looking in in general, right? Because we're younger, we've never owned before, they're owning. So I think there's just a lack of confidence that's a little bit like fake it till you make it and show up and be the boss and be the person and learn your people. And it's a people business. So learn your people and they're going to respect you and like you if you put effort into it, it, them. And that takes time. Because I remember when you first started, you didn't have the same confidence because you didn't have the 20 years experience or yeah. the 15 years or whatever that I had. So it could just be a situation where you were on the phone and maybe just didn't exude that. Well, it's, you had six months experience or one year. And, then, you know, even when you had the experience, you know, maybe a year, year and a half and you were 99% on something's like the person was just like, well, let's just see what Charles said. Like, oh my God, shoot Charles right now. Yeah, well, this Charles is isn't here answer. anymore. Okay. Charles, Charles has left the building. Charles is dead. No. Charles is dead. <laughs> we just, we just did Taylor Swift, you know, that yeah. song where she's like, is Taylor? She's like, she's dead. Yeah. You know? That's what it reminded me of. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, You just have to, you're the owner. You were chosen to be the owner. These people are looking to you for leadership. Like, not going to say it's not a hurdle, but it is something you've got to kind of start to figure out what makes people tick, and then you will be that leader. The one thing I I know you just said about, I want to reiterate, is the best thing that you can do, female or male, when you're going in without that same confidence and you are dealing with that 20-year veteran, if they're working four days a week, the thing I would advise you on, especially for my senior doctors listening, let's go get them down to the three days. I want you in that practice by yourself two days a week. Mm -hmm. Because this is going to give you all the confidence in the world. It gives the confidence of the senior doctor and then the team as well. So um, the more you can do by yourself, the better. And it's like, I think about our relationship. It was like when I finally was just like, I'm not going to reply to that message. Christy, you reply. Because mm-hmm. you, you got to transition those relationships. Off. Yeah. And I think if you're a senior doctor listening to this, that is a huge piece of advice that I know I benefited from and that I now try to empower to the people who work under me is saying, you know what? Madison's incredible at that. Or Bridget's amazing. Or Matt's the, really the person you need to be talking to right. because this is how this is going to be, right? Like you are better with a good team and with good people under you and being a leader is part of like not having to be the guy all the time uh, or the girl whatever it looks like okay this one is if you do a partner deal that values the practice after the associate adds to collections 
what incentive does the associate have to produce as much as possible? Okay, well, we're going to answer this. There are a lot of specialty answers that maybe might differ from what I think Charles and I are about to say. This was a group of general dentists, so we're going to answer from that perspective. And we've answered this question elsewhere in other episodes. But what is your first gut? <laughs> Stop thinking about yourself. That's the first thing I would tell you. You don't want to make the business grow because you're going to somehow make it more valuable. I will tell you that if you don't make the business grow, you're going to be a liability and, in my opinion, be terminated. So I think the business is there and we're going to make an investment with the associate. I'm making salary investments. I'm making signage investments. I'm making equipment investments, technology, CE. I'm putting a ton of energy into bringing the new person in. And so I think it's reasonable and fair that we value the business at some point. And I think that point is typically between 18 to 24 months after you are there. But to say it bluntly, as a GP, uh, I think the business should be valued after. And I think it should be valued for more money to recoup what essentially that the doctor has given up and invested on you. And honestly, we need to increase the cash flows and the profits as well, because now they're going to share profit with you. And so there's a lot of hurdles for that senior doctor to be able to hit before this even makes sense, you know, as a partner. So I don't want it to be about them. I don't want it to be about you. It needs to be something reasonable and fair. So that's what we typically say between 18 and 24 months is when a, a reasonable time that we kind of cut off the timeline to use those numbers and kind of backtrack for our evaluations. Yep, I agree. Next question. How important is it that the dentistry you're doing matches the dentistry of the practice? I'm assuming they mean the one that they're buying. Yeah, look, your dentistry could be, you could be a uh, AGDGPR, IV sedation, been out for two years and gone through all the mission plant courses and, and you have extraction, guy or gal, and you thorough an endo and this could be a crown and bridge practice. It could be, I don't know, with a holistic type practice and maybe that is not your training. It could be, I've seen situations where it is a prosthodontic practice that is owned by a prosthodontist. Well, let me say it differently. A general dentist that has 20 plus years of experience and is almost treating his practice or she treating a practice like a pros, doing all these higher end cases, and then a prosthodontist comes in and purchases it. I mean, you got two different specialties buying from a GP. I've got a holistic doctor selling to this person. I've got a crown and bridge doctor selling to this person. I could have different nationalities, you know, partnering with each other. I could have different religions buying and selling from each other. To me, it's you do a thorough interview of the practice, you do a thorough interview of the person, and you take a look at your individual skill sets and what they kind of bring to the table. And what value do you add to that is typically how I try to approach it and not, you know, we both went to COIS one through four, therefore we're a match or I went to spearing course and you went to this and all of a sudden we don't align. To me, I think it's, it's, you have to think bigger and broader than that. Yeah, this reminds me. I talked to a girl this week. She was looking at, she's not buying it, but she was looking into buying a practice and it was holistic and it had a big airway component of right. the practice. Oh and so, God. but like she right loved the location. She loved the finish out. She loved all the things. She didn't mind holistic dentistry, but she didn't do airway and she didn't really have any desire to do it. And so the question was like, is this practice something I could buy. Well, when we looked at the cash flows, the cash flows themselves were less than what she was making as an associate. And so my question to her was, do you mind taking a step back? And then if we remove airway and we put back in the thing she's referring out, do you think that's enough? 
Are you willing to look at that? And is this something, is this is the location and the space and all the things about the practice, is it enough to take on the risk of changing the dynamic of the practice for what you want to do? And for her, it wasn't. But, and that was primarily because the cash flows were lower, right? But it, to me, this is no different than if you buy a 100% PPO practice and your ultimate goal is fee-for-service. I would never tell you to go in and change everything right away. But if you do the demographics and you do the research and you think, hey, this is something that over time I can make this what I want, I can add all these other components, well then do it, right? But like at the end of the day, any business you're going to buy, you're going to be taking on risk of changing what it is in any shape, fashion, or form. You just have to take calculated and thoughtful and educated risk to do that. But never buy a practice that you can't, if it's 80% implants and you don't do implants, probably not the practice for you because you're not going to be able to sustain your cash flows and the expenses of the practice while you make that shift. Right. One comment there. If the practice prints money, I mean, just makes so much freaking money. It's a million dollar practice, makes 500 grand. And there's a couple of things you don't like and you want to change at your vision. Amazing. You know, if it's a $600,000 practice that nets 150 and after debt, you're going to make a hundred and there's all these changes that you want to make. This is where the anxiety starts to kick in. Yeah. So you better sell us on the fact that you love the location and you don't need money. Your spouse makes X hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's down the street and this is what you want to do as a passion and not really for a return on investment. It's very few people that we meet, you know, like that. So as as we come across these practices that maybe don't match exactly perfectly, at least show me some cash. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> We're going to end with one more for okay. this part, then we'll kind of move on to part two. But this is a very easy question. The question is do, but I'm going to say should. Should buyers have financial obligations to brokers who are selling practices that they are buying? Well, that would be a no. Let me ask you this. The question's actually written. Do buyers have financial obligation to brokers? You should never have a financial obligation to a broker who is selling a practice. But the reality is, do buyers have... Yes. If they do, if they sign it? If they sign the agreement, and that's the clarification, right? You should not, but if you (laughs) sign something or you are looking at a practice for a seller who signed an agreement saying that the buyer would be responsible for a certain amount of the fee then if you like that practice and you want it, you will have to do that. And we have represented several people who have had that and they've had to double pay because they did not want to only rely on the seller's advisors to help them in that transition. I feel like a lot of these practice brokers have gone away, but I assume they're still out there. But bottom line is the way it works is the seller hires a broker for 10%. And so million dollar practice price, basically what the broker says, hey, seller, I'm going to sell it for 10%. And we're going to get the buyer to pay 3%. And so you sign it basically to get the financials. You get the tax returns, the financials, and it looks amazing practice. And you actually, you really want to buy it for $1 million. Well, now all of a sudden you sign this obligation that you're going to have to pay 3%. And the broker's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. We'll just put it into the loan. You just paid $30,000 and you still actually don't understand what you're buying. So you now you need to hire somebody to walk you through the process. So I would say is be aware and literally go... I wouldn't do it. I mean, I'm not going to sign to pay a percentage on the deal when I don't even know what the deal is. Yeah. You pay your expenses, I'll pay mine. Yeah. Easy as that. Exactly. So, okay, team, that's all we have for today. Thanks for joining us on part one of our most asked questions. We'll be back for part two in episode 84. And as always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time. Awesome.